So, Father, thank you for bringing us back together uh, in our last time to think about John. Of course, we're barely even out of the gate, which is fine. But I pray that we will, um, again, gather some sense of how you're wanting to shape our understanding of you through this gospel, Lord, so that we can praise and worship and know you better. And I pray, Father, that you will do that even in a small manner this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I do want to leave time for Q&A today. And I, um, you know, just to sort of bat some things around, we haven't done that very much at all in here. Um, but I, I'd like to do that. My father tells me that I often lie when I say that. Um, and so I'll, I'll try to stay true to this. Last week we did Jesus... Jesus' night meeting with Nicodemus, um, which is a significant thing to see that Jesus is, is meeting Nicodemus under the cover of the night. Um, and you know that they have uh, this brief exchange. It's really not all that brief, but they have this exchange where Jesus and Nicodemus talk past one another. Right? Um, remember, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's the claim that Jesus makes to Nicodemus. But we talked a little bit last week about that Greek word anoten, uh, which is, you know, this is a funny thing about language. And those of you who deal in the realm of language, you know how this works. Any linguist in here? Any people? Some people are better linguists around here. Um, you know, the difficulty of moving from any language, original language, to a target language can be complicated because some words in an original language, have a broader range of meaning uh, than they do in than, than what the target language has as a resource. <coughs> so, um, anoten can either mean, I guess, in ours, in, in their world, conceptually in our world as well, being born again or being born from above. Jesus is talking about being born from above. Nicodemus mishears the linguistic claim and he says he's being born again. And so they have Nicodemus. And, you know, these are the kinds of readings that you have to sit back and kind of chuckle at. I mean, Nicodemus was one of the literati of the day. He was, he was a smart guy. He, he had gone to school. The best of the training there was probably the Pharisee. Uh, and a respected Pharisee at that. And then Nicodemus says, well, how exactly does one get born again? Can one enter into the womb a second time and be born and Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, I do think the emphasis here, and there's a lot of debate on this text. This text has engendered an enormous amount of discussion in the history of interpretation. Um, being born of water and being born of the Spirit, on the primary level, are emphasizing the regenerative work of the Spirit. In the Old Testament, like in Ezekiel and other places, the pouring out of water and the new work of the Spirit is of a piece of God's regenerative and redemptive work. For example, Genesis chapter 1, we see the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the deep, of the tahom, of the water. And God takes that chaotic water and He forms it into an ordered water now. And then from it builds of the world. So the focus on the work of the Spirit here is the primary emphasis that John is making. Not so much the water as it is the work of the Spirit. 
But I do think it's fair, and some would disagree with me on this, but I do think it's fair to recognize that on a secondary level, one can recognize the claim of being born of water and the Spirit as indicating on some level the importance of baptism. All right? Being baptized. That the water itself as a symbol indicates for us the sacramental work of the Spirit on our lives in acts of regeneration on the body and the soul, bringing to life that which was dead. Now, this, you know, this is, of course, a massive topic about baptism, but on some, some, from some vantage point, the temporality of these things begin to get a little bit fluid. Because, again, it's not the water that's in view primarily. The water is a means, it's a physical means toward an ultimate spiritual end. And what is the spiritual end? Well, it is being born into the life of Christ, His death and His resurrection by the effective regenerative work of the Spirit. So, you know, we baptize kids around here. And, um, you know, I've, I've had my kids baptized. And, and uh, you know, I, I grew up in a Baptist world. I wasn't planning on talking about this. But I grew up in a, ba- in a Baptist world. Even got baptized twice. Because I wasn't sure that the first time I got baptized, I was really saved or not. How many of you got baptized twice? Come on, come clean. Yeah, I see it. I see it. All right. Hey, listen, if you, if you go to the Jordan River on some... Tr- I've got to be careful here. Don't resist the urge. Don't get baptized again. You don't need to. I know people go to the Jordan River and they they do this, don't they? Like get it rebaptized and don't don't do that. Um, you know, Paul said one Lord, one faith, one baptism. If you've got baptized once, that is good. I mean, you don't need to one up it at the Jordan River. Um, well, I and I got baptized twice, and, and and in a sense, when we baptize our children, when I baptize my children. Um, I don't. When when, the, when when it's done in the in the sacramental life of the church, it's a promise that God is making that He works through the family. It's a promise that God is making that these children are they're mine, and I'm claiming them. And there's a promise that God makes that we anticipate to be the normal course of events. That what is represented in the waters of baptism where our children are brought into the water and the death and the life of our Lord and brought into the covenant community of faith, there's a promise that God will see through to make the regenerative work of that, the waters of baptism real and effective and actualized in their lives. Um, that they will grow into the reality of what has been claimed on them before anything that they ever had the ability to do. God has claimed them. Um, and by the way, this is Cranmer, this is Luther, this is Calvin. I mean, for all the differences from the viewpoints theologically of the magisterial reformers, on this one, they really spoke with, with a lot of uniformity, a lot of unity. And, one, and we, we, I, I want to talk this way with my children. I think we need to talk this way with ourselves. One of the primary means by which Calvin and Luther pastored people who were struggling with the assurance of their salvation was to remind them that they had been baptized. You've been baptized. You've been claimed. And not because of the baptismal waters themselves, but because of the promise of God that's assured by them. You see, that's a big distinction. It's not the... And this is where the whole hocus-pocus thing comes from. It's not from the magic of the water. It's from the promise of God that's communicated through the water. 
through that physical means, that we look at that and we say, God has claimed these children for himself. And whenever his regenerative works uh, work happens in their heart, when they move from death to life, when their eyes open up and they realize, oh, I'm not my own. And oh, this gospel, these, this creed that I've been saying, this gospel I've been hearing about in church since I was knee high up, that's true. And guess what? It's not just true. It's true for me. It's not just something that I say in a performative social act. It's a social act that's also shaped the ways in which now I understand who I am in God's larger story. That, that's what we're hoping for, I think, with our kids. And it's why um, I told you this a moment, didn't I? I had with my son a few weeks ago where I looked over and he's the one that doesn't like coming to church. And if he's got, you know, if, if he's the only one that has to come for some reason, other, other ones are sick. I mean, it's going to turn into a hellacious moment at the house. I mean, I, I, I've, we've gone all through it. And so this was one of those mornings. He didn't want to come. Everyone else was homesick. He's coming with Daddy. And he is kicking and screaming the whole way. Church is boring. I don't want to go. I'm like, okay, come on, you know, we're, we're going. And here we are. And all of a sudden, I look over, and he's praying the prayers of confession. And he's praying, and he's confessing his faith in the Nicene Creed. And he's hearing that he's been forgiven. And then he goes back to drawing. But then he's back in. I'm like, but, but that though we can't downplay the importance of, of ritualized behaviors for the sake of habituating ourselves to thinking about ourselves and our world in a particular way. Um, and that's why, that's why I hope I didn't grow up in a liturgical setting. I came to it late, and I love it. But I know I came to it late, and I love it. Right? I mean, you kind of force it on me. I, I'm just praying that this stuff is seeping in, and that before you know it. All of a sudden, this is not just the ritual embodiment that I'm doing with my fellow community of faith. This is coming from the regenerative work of the Spirit that I can say, I believe this to be true and I'm putting everything on the line for it. I believe it. Um, I told you, I, I, I think I've mentioned this multiple times in here, but it works now again. I had an incredible encounter. And I don't if you're here in the room and you're the one who told me this, would you remind me who you are? Um, I had a gentleman stop me after some Bible study here or some event at Advent uh, three, four years ago. And he said, um, I, I asked that I asked many people because I'm fascinated by this. How long have you been at the Advent? And, you know, so many of you have been here since you were, you know, spewing up <laughs> since you were little. Um, and he said, I've, I've been here for over 30 years. And so I was fascinated. He said, but I've only been a Christian for about 10. And I said, OK, now my ears are perked up. Uh, I want to hear this story. And he said, well, he said, for years I, I came to church. This is part of the, I mean, again, I'm, I'm a Southerner. He didn't say that, but I'm interpreting. I'm a Southerner, and, you know, I've got my country club membership, and I go to church. I mean, that's kind of what I do, right? And uh, so he says, I come to church, I say my thing. And, and, but whenever we got to the Nicene Creed, I would never say it, because I, I, I didn't believe it. And then one Sunday, after so many, many, many year, decades of coming to church, I said the Nicene Creed, and I believed it. And I'm a Christian. It's like, wow. Right? That's it. I mean, there's something about how these things get into us, right? The, the work of the Spirit of God through means, physical means like water and bread and wine. And by the way, I don't do the communion thing very often. I did this morning. I, I proved it this morning. I will never be a Catholic priest. I dropped Jesus. Right? I, I, I'm, I'm, picking, I'm right there, I'm thinking, oh, this is horrible. I mean, I, I didn't know what to do. I'm like, oh. So I, I, I told Smalley, I said, that's it. I'll never be a priest. I, said, I blew it this morning. Um, but through these means, right, through bread and through wine, 
God communicates himself through liturgy. God communicates the, the, the operative work of his spirit in our lives to regenerate us from death unto life. Well, that's enough of that. Let's move to John chapter 4. <clears throat> now, here's a story. I'm reading out of the ESV. Now, when Jesus heard that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, and notice this, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and he departed again for Galilee. Now, if you remember, this is one of the distinctions between the synoptic, synoptic Gospels and John. John, Jesus tends to hang around Jerusalem. In the Synoptic Gospels, he tends to hang around uh, Cana and Galilee outside. But now he's getting out of Dodge. And he's going out to Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. That's a verse worth tucking away somewhere. He had to pass through Samaria. Now, you're going to hear the disciples in a few minutes protest. But he had to. So... Uh, he came uh, to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And now we're going to get into a wild scene. There's Jesus all by himself at the well. How many icons and paintings can you picture in your mind of this scene? And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. We've got two problems right out of the bat. Or the gate, I should say. Thinking baseball. Um, number one, he's in Samaria. And you do realize it's right. But I, who are the Samaritans? Where do they come from? Truthfully, we're not sure. I mean, we talked about sort of inter, intermixing and, and mingling of, um, of uh, uh, maybe Babylonians and, and then Jews. But, but there's a lot of mystery about how the Samaritans came to be as an organized community. In fact, one of the... Um, Textual manuscripts that we work with in the Old Testament is called the Samaritan Pentateuch. There, there aren't very many Hebrew text types that one works with to do textual criticism with the Hebrew Bible. The Samaritan Pentateuch is one of them. You remember, the Samaritans didn't recognize the prophets as, as canonical. They only rec recognized the Pentateuch as canonical. And it was a highly edited and refracted Pentateuch that reflected their own theological outlook. Uh, so, for example, we're going to get into this is going to turn into a theological debate between this woman and Jesus. This is where it's going. She wants to debate Jesus about theology. So, number one, he's with a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans didn't hang out. That didn't go well. And number two, this is a woman. And in a first century world, and we're going to find not just any woman, right? But a woman in a first century world with a Jew by well, altogether, alone, you don't do that. I mean, that, that, that's a social custom that is completely taboo, almost as bad as a woman coming in and lowering her hair and breaking up some ointment and rubbing Jesus' feet. That was taboo, too. That, honestly, I mean, I, I don't know how to say it, that, that was plain erotic. And everyone there would have got that. And guess what? They were uncomfortable. Just like you and I would be. Have you been in situations like that? You're at a family gathering, all of a sudden, some your I've, I've had that. Your, your cousin brings his girlfriend home, and you're like, I can't look over there. What, what she's wearing, I've never seen before, right? That kind of thing. Well, th this is what's happening, right? Right here. So Samaritan, she's a woman, and Jesus said to her, "Give me a drink." For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy some food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, she gets the problem. Excuse me? How is it that you, a Jew, 
ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And now Jesus is going to get right to the heart of it. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. Do you remember me saying this to you last week? Jesus rarely responds to questions put to him in the ways in which the people want to be answered. Now, there's Jesus, and I said this last week, he's not the guy that you want to invite to the social gathering if you want it just to kind of run smoothly. That was, that was a pleasant evening. Well, Jesus is going to make it an unpleasant evening because he's going to want to talk about what he wants to talk about. And with this woman, he wants to talk about living water. So the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Did you love that? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Now she's, get, she's starting to press on a nerve. Oh, that, that's going after Jesus here a little bit. Why? He's a Jew. Remember, Jacob was the eponym for the northern kingdom Israel, which is probably where the Samaritans may become. We don't know, but probably there. And he's from the southern kingdom, right? Um, he's from uh, Judah in the south. You're talking about Jacob up here in the north. And so she's kind of pushing this southern Jew, right? This one from Jerusalem, she's pushing his buttons. Are you greater than Jacob? He gave us the well and he drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks Jacob's water, I'm imposing that here, but the drinks of this water, they're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Did you hear that? What a powerful claim. The water that I'm willing to give you if you drink this water, good water here. I hear this Jacob's well water is good. But you're going to get thirsty again. The water that I'm going to give to you will spring up into you into a spring of everlasting life. Again, this is temple imagery Jesus is using. He did it in John chapter 3. He's done it before and he's kind of doing it again. That's what Ezekiel saw when the Spirit of God returned to the temple. What happened when the Spirit of God returned to the temple? Water began to flow from the temple in an eternal flowing spring. And Jesus is saying, I am that water. I will give you water that was basically the temple of God in your midst, flowing for eternal springs, never running dry. Well, the woman, just like Nicodemus, there's a lot going on here between chapter 3 and chapter 4. The woman, just like Nicodemus, misses it. Right? They're talking past one another. What did Nicodemus say? Well, how do you get born again? Go back into your mother's womb? And what does she say? I'd like that water so that I'll not to be thirsty. And even more important, you ever picked up one of these jugs, Jesus? Drawing water from here? It's a lot of work. Oh, boy. And here Jesus goes again, breaking social convention. Now, Jesus is going to go right to the heart of her problem. Um, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. Because you have had five husbands. And the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman says, I, you just have to love this. I mean, I don't know if this is shock and awe. I don't know how you respond to that. But the woman says, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> that's just, uh, it, it has to be funny. I don't know if, uh, just to me, that's hilarious, right? Uh, you're a prophet, I think. 
And what does she do? She wants to shift the conversation again. Again, there's a play going on here. She wants to shift. Why? Well, you're a prophet. You've recognized who I am. I've got a theology question for you. Do you hear this? This is what she says. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Gerizim. Do you say that Jerusalem is the place where you're supposed to worship and Jerusalem alone? A hotly contested theological difference between the theology of the Samaritan Pentateuch and the theology of the Pentateuch that was affirmed in the southern kingdom in Jerusalem and Judah. Where do you worship? Without doubt, the Old Testament, as it moves in its compositional history, affirms and assures us worship takes place in Jerusalem. Well, not for the Samaritan Pentateuch. It takes place up here, Mount Gerizim. Um, let, let, let me say this real fast, because I think this is worth talking about. Um, I, I teach theology for a living. You know, that's what I do. And um, it's an amazing thing, actually, because I, I, uh, how does I, say? I, I, get these, I get questions a lot. I don't have answers often, but I get questions a lot. Um, and uh, talking about theology um, can be an amazingly distracting reality to the real issues that are going on in our lives. This woman wants to talk about theology. Jesus isn't interested in talking about it at all. He's like, I, I mean, I'll get to this in a second. But I want to tell you something more important than this little debate that we're going to have about where worship should take place. He said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem where you worship the Father. You see, you're getting it all wrong. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. He lays that out. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. I mean, what's the claim here? Again, Jesus is reshaping the character of the conversation. God is looking for worshipers, true worshipers. And in some sense, the place where worship happens is irrelevant. Because he wants worshipers that worship him truly on the basis of his faithfulness and in spirit, which goes right back to the conversation with John, with Nicodemus in chapter 3. We need to be born again, born from above by the Spirit. Genuine worshipers are worshipers that have been born anew from above by the Spirit of God and recognize that Jesus is who He says He is and that the Father is who He says He is on the basis of the Son. So whatever theological abstractions you want to wrestle with, if that is in any way disconnected from the conversation you're having right now with me, Jesus, then we're off the page. It is an abstraction. It is not concrete. Because the concrete issue that's staring you right now is me. See, that's what Jesus is doing. I'm not going to let you get away from me. When you want to go somewhere else to talk about something, I'm not going to let you do that. You're going to stay right here at this well, and you're going to deal with me and the implications of me. It's powerful here, right? Well, it's not only powerful, it's effective. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all these things. And this is the first, I love this, it's the first place in the Gospel of John where Jesus clearly identifies who he is. Everything else has been symbol. Everything else has been redemptive drama. It's not that we're not, we don't, we're not aware. 
But now, out of Jesus' mouth, he says to a woman, shouldn't be talking to her, and a Samaritan, shouldn't be talking to that one either, at a well, all by themselves, he said, I who speak to you, I'm he. He tells her, you're looking for the Messiah, I am him. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. Of course they did, right? You're not supposed to do that. But no one said anything. No one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out to the town and they were coming to him. As you move on, we'll see, and then many believed in him. It's a powerful story, isn't it? What's the response of the woman? What's the effective work of Jesus in this encounter with her? She immediately becomes a witness to who he is. That's what she does, which is at the heart of John's gospel. Remember? How does John's gospel end? These things are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. All of this is coming together with an aggregate force in John's Gospel to say, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John's Gospel looks for witnesses. John the Baptist is a witness. Nicodemus becomes a witness. The woman at the well becomes a witness. Lazarus becomes a witness. All of these figures are witnesses pointing away from themselves to Jesus of Nazareth saying, you're going to have to deal with him. You're going to deal with the implications of what he's come to do and who he claims to be. Because he's claiming to be the Messiah. But not just the Messiah. The king, the political figure who's coming to make order and make things new again in our political system. He's not just that kind of Messiah. He's the creator king Messiah. He's the son of God. He's the word of God become flesh who's making the whole world new. John 3.16, right? God so loved the whole cosmos, the whole world that's out of whack. Why? Um, so that he can make us his own children, right? So what do you want to talk about? Uh, John 4 is fun. I mean, this is great. It's great. A lot, lot, lot more we can talk about. Um, but I think time is. What is the time? Oh, yeah, it's almost gone. You want to ask any questions? Fire anything away? Jim? I'm struggling with the concept of baptism in terms of people who never care about. You've never been baptized, baptized, and you saved. If you've been baptized, if you later go astray, and you lose your salvation, how does that work? Okay, you're dismissed, all right? Um, yeah. Um, Oh, the, the question is <laughs> baptism, people who've never been baptized, and then people who are baptized and who go astray. Uh, question mark. Um, well, the answer to the first question is one that's been raised for a very long time, and it's, it's, been, and it's been controversial in the life of the church from the beginning. Okay? Um, so again, we can, I can't delve into this too deeply, but I will say, you know, the thief on the cross is exhibit A, right? That we have some kind of attestation in Scripture where someone who obviously was not baptized, and now we're talking about an emergency situation here, but someone who was not baptized, um, <laughs> was that the understatement of the year, right? So, so, um, he, he was not baptized and he was, he was in the kingdom that day. So I don't think that we can say that baptism is necessary to eternal salvation in a de facto sense that doesn't require some, a lot of nuance. Now, as far as the other question, that's harder, I think. Um, and it's um, scary because I think we want to always live. First of all, I'd say we are never in the position as humans 
to make any kinds of claims about the salvation of other individuals. We're just, we are never in that position. That, that, is, that is God's providence. He will sort all things out, and we, we leave that to Him. Matter of fact, the Bible's real clear that we're not to try to do too much of that work. Separating wheat from the tares, that's not our job. That's God's job at the final judgment. That, that's, that's His job, not ours. So I would say, number one, we always reserve judgment, and we always place the weight of the scales in God's economy toward His mercy, and we cry out to Him in that regard. All right, His mercy. But there is an underbelly, I think, to the reality of, of the covenantal claims of baptism. Blessings and cursings, right? And I, I think about this, even with, you know, and I, I don't know all the implications of it, but I do know that there are blessings with this covenant gift that are given, but there's also genuine warnings. You need to stay in the community of faith. And I, I talk this way with friends. I mean, I had, I had a dear, I mentioned this to you before, a dear friend, the philosophical issues of the, of the, of the faith it became too much for him, too much cognitive dissonance, he couldn't stay in the church, and I remember being on the phone just saying, listen, I understand. These are hard issues philosophically. Not easy to kind of put everything together. And I know why you're struggling with this. I get it. I understand. I'm sympathetic, actually, to a lot of your concerns. But wrestle with those things inside the life of the church. Not outside. I mean, we, we're not Westminster Confession of Faith people here. We're 39 Articles people. But one of the things I like about the Confession of Faith is it encourages people who are doubting and struggling to run to the altar, the communion rail, and take communion. It's not just for he- healthy people. It's for sick people to go, right? Um, so I, I would say, you know, I, when you think about the people that we love, it, it, there is a great gift, I think, to, to being passionate, lovingly passionate and gracious and, and patient, but say, please be in church. Please be in the place where you can put yourself where God does His normal work God can do extraordinary things. But God's normal work that He does on people's hearts and lives, He does it in the church. Through means like preaching and prayer and seeing all these people like I did today. I mean, it's almost overwhelming to the point of tears. Seeing all of you flood to the altar together. The whole church empties out of the aisles, flooding to the altar. Why? Because we need to be fed by on the body and blood of our Lord again to be reminded that the gospel is true and it's true for me. And I've heard it and now I want to ingest it. Right, by the power of the Spirit. I mean, just go to church. I, mean, I think that's what I'd say. But as far as how all that works out, there, there are implications, I think. And there, there, should, there are legitimate warnings in the Bible that I don't want to neuter. I don't, I don't want to neuter them. They're, they're, they're real warnings. And they're warnings that matter. And I think we hold out for the mercy and the hope of God that He does crazy things to remind people in moments of their lives when they have turned their backs on God for a long time to remind them, oh, by the way, you've been baptized. You're mine. And he draws them back to himself. We always look to the future and hope that God will do that again with the people that we love. Lord, bless us as we go and fill our hearts with joy and thanksgiving at the goodness of your word and at the fact that for all the horror that comes, Lord, from the reality of sin and evil in our world, we find refuge, safety, and warmth, and compassion and mercy under the shadow of your wings. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.